story. Huh? What did we do yesterday? Huh? What did we do yesterday? We go boating. What is boating? Boating. You have to. You gotta. You got. You gotta go somewhere, and nobody can see you. And you gotta vote. Who do you want to do? Uh, what does it look like in there? There's a lot of people. That does look like a school. Yeah. And they give me some paper, and what do I do with it? You gotta write and put on the dots. And then where do we take it? Put it on the computer where the lady's sitting next to it. Mm-hmm. Then after, then in the end, we get a I vote sticker. Yeah, I voted. In nearly every election since you were born, I've brought you into the voting booth with me. This election was the first in which you seemed even marginally engaged with where we were and what we might be doing there. Even a few months ago, when we walked into the same space to vote in the midterm primaries, you followed me wordlessly, more interested in the interior design of a real live middle school than in the political process playing out in its cafeteria. I understand this wholeheartedly. My experience of 1980s childhood and 90s adolescence was working class but suburban, insular and naive in ironic and dangerous ways. Though it was only true for a faction of us, there was a contingent of black kids living in predominantly black cities in this country who believed our parents had weathered the worst of white supremacy, that we were approaching something akin to equity, a huxtaplication of our educational and professional ideals. Because a few more of our peers had college-educated and advanced degree-holding parents than in generations past, it was easy for an inkling of entitlement to creep in. We were children being raised 20 years after desegregation, living in decent if nondescript neighborhoods that were clean, safe, affordable, and black. We presumed that our dreams, even the wildest ones, were attainable at only moderate cost. Fewer than three million votes elected three presidents in 16 years. Today, there are 3.2 million high school seniors alone graduating. They should come across that stage with a plume in one hand and the voter card in the other, because they can make a difference. Twelve million college students must vote. You have the power. We might have been well aware that other black neighborhoods were suffering. I may have been born in the slum, but the slum was not born in me. I can rise above my circumstances. Neighborhoods to which we all had the close connections of cousins, co-parents, friends, or church affiliations. It was the height of the crack era, after all. Followed by zero-tolerance legislation that kept robbing us of people we cared about. Still... We toggled between the ignorance that our own families were fewer than four paychecks from similar fates and the idealistic belief that any success we attained as grown-ups would eventually be able to eradicate generational poverty. I am not sure how I came to belong to this faction of dreamy-eyed black kids. I was raised an apartment dweller, born to a single-parent household. Little beyond my mom's bi-weekly paycheck and her acquired adeptness at making payment arrangements on our bills, stood between us and a series of shutoff notices or an eviction. In the event that I would grow up to graduate from a four-year college, I'd be the first in my immediate family to do so. I do not quite know where I got all my optimism. 
but I think it was because we did well enough without home ownership or college degrees for me not to realize them as the markers of generational stability that they were. This one, Rice. Floppy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they be saying it worked. Oh, I ain't seen one of those things in so long. Wow, a floppy disk is in there. I have to buy this software, and the software was like about $1,500. I don't know how long I'm going to be working. For 30 years, my grandmother worked as a stenographer in the Baltimore City Circuit Court. My mother worked in medical billing, sensible, if unfulfilling jobs that kept situational poverty at bay. I took their holding that wall for granted believing the rhetoric of the day about how endless opportunity had become for kids growing up black and not quite broke in America. Neither my Nana nor my mom dissuaded me from becoming an artist. They might have believed, as I did, that the sacrifices of their pragmatism had given me the wiggle room of whimsy so many white kids accept as their birthright. From the minute you walked in that door, you've been a one-man wrecking crew, trying to tear down what's taken a lot of hard work to build up, skewering everything with your flippin' shenanigans! Man, I, I was with you up till skewering. I also watched a lot of television. During a time when depictions of suburban black family life shared enough cultural similarity with my own to convince me that no social harm could befall me that would be too great for me to overcome. I fear that I am raising you with an inherited insularity, but I will not have you perpetuating all my childhood delusions. I was taught that voting held particular import for black Americans because the right to do so had been withheld from us for so long. My mother, born in 1960, is five years older than the Voting Rights Act. My grandmother, who would not have been of legal age to vote until my mother was one year old, could not cast a ballot regardless when she turned 18. In the 1980s, voting was still new enough that the novelty had yet to wear off. Even during those Reagan years, optimism about our country's collective racial future felt easier than it is 40 years later. We had not yet elected a black president then. We had not witnessed the depth to which the country could backslide after clearing what seemed an improbable zenith. We had grown hesitant to believe with so many newly minted anti-discrimination laws in place laws it had taken the country centuries to implement, that they could and would be ignored, rescinded, or violated with such staggering impunity. As a result, voting seemed less a matter of survival than of ceremony. As a kid, the idea of it felt the same to me as observing Martin Luther King Day, probably because I failed to realize that I was older than Martin Luther King Day. President Reagan signed into law a bill today creating a national holiday honoring Martin Luther King. The White House staged an impressive ceremony today, the President and Dr. King's widow walking into the Rose Garden together in an effort to spruce up Mr. Reagan's tattered civil rights image. The President signed the bill, which he had so strongly opposed, making Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. It existed because of a bill that had taken many people years to bring to the ballot, a bill enough white Americans opposed that it could have been ousted with far more ease than it was passed. When I came of age, I voted on ceremony for many years, straight-ticket Democratic for most, though I was registered as an independent. And I did so cynically, because the popular vote does not determine all. And it's disheartening when, despite a larger share of layperson support, the Electoral College 
appoints the candidate a majority of voters opposes. For a time in my early 20s, it didn't matter much to me who was in office. They were all white and thereby largely disinterested in my community's specific interests. I didn't canvass for anyone until 2008, when I walked residential neighborhoods in Grand Rapids, Michigan, armed with clipboards and pamphlets, making sure people were registered and that they intended to support Obama. But even that was a detached engagement. I felt confident he would win for one. And secondly, I was not yet your mother. We knew relative political peace for the first six years of your life. You were born in a midterm year, 2010. You were two when Obama was reelected. You are eight now that his legacy feels distant. Eight while our future as a republic feels indeterminate. Eight as we test for the first time in recent history the sturdiness of the most fundamental components of our constitution. I can tell you now what no one had a precedent for telling me when I was your age. If America elects someone with no intention of being president and every intention of establishing a dictatorship, voting is less a coronation scepter than a prison ship. The sticker we receive afterward less a corsage than a bandolier. If America elects someone who intends to obstruct justice, the hard-won tool of justice that is the vote, then this tool black families have only been able to hold for some 60 plus years provides us too little protection but it is our only protection. So we must wield it as ferociously as we can. In 2018, there is evidence of this everywhere. Despite broken ballot scanners, vote switching, hours long lines, stacks of unprocessed voter registration forms. But I'm here tonight to tell you votes remain to be counted. There are voices that were waiting to be heard. Across our state, folks are Uncounted mail-in votes, races declared prematurely, and other forms of suppression too insidious to know. The Democratic Party reclaimed the House of Representatives. And the recklessness of this president's first two years will at least be met with formal opposition. Because he is an avowed racist and misogynist, a record number of women, particularly women of color, campaigned and won seats in that house powered by the votes of women like me, interested in guarding the futures of girls like you. Here before you tonight, as your congresswoman-elect, with many firsts behind my name. The first woman of color to represent our state in Congress. The first woman to wear a hijab to make She absolutely is. Uh, she has been elected as Massachusetts' first black congresswoman. Of course, she defeated the 10-time, 10-term congressman, Mike Capuano, in the 7th District. And she ran unopposed tonight, so it was automatic that she was going to win. She has won. She is about to now uh, to a thunderous applause. Therese Davids of Kansas. Davids and Deb Holland became the first Native American women elected to Congress last night. And Davids is Kansas's first openly gay female member of Congress. It's a big deal. I woke up feeling very I'll be honest. I am still afraid. I do not believe this election has done enough to protect the country from collapse before the next one. I am not confident that we'll gain enough momentum to oust our current president from his post in 2020. 
that weariness is warranted. When the time comes in 10 years, when you turn 18, I encourage you to be wary yourself. Wariness affords us protection too. There are braver women than I in positions of power now, and you will be raised with the scores of them as pillars of reference. Though it remains to be seen what will come of their efforts, I will match their work with my own. I finally understand why I must. Story. Yes? Do you think it's better for girls to be in control or boys? Girls or boys be controllers? Yeah, like who, who do you think it's better to make the rules? Both. Both? Yeah. Boys and girls? Yep.